It's wonderful to be here with you. Whenever I, I preach and teach, I'm always incredibly humbled. In many ways, I find it amazing that I'm here and you're there. Uh, and I love being where you are as well. That's why I love Neil. Uh, as you know, I don't need to tell you this. Neil's a, a very gifted man of God. And one of the reasons I'm here in Grand Rapids, you can tell from my accent, I'm, I'm probably not a Grand Rapidian. Uh, but I've come across the, the pond, uh, really to preach, but also to come and fellowship with the church here and really just to commend Neil to you and the work that he's doing. I wanted to, we've planned this for two or three years now. I don't know where it was, but we had this kind of dream. Hey, wouldn't it be fun to go to Grand Rapids and hang out and eat their food and uh, have a great time with them? But to come and just tell you a little bit about what Neil is doing and just to cheer him on and really commend him to you. The two stories I, I want to give you uh, that emphasize what Matt said, that uh, Neil is not just in a unique place, but he's uniquely gifted to work for God in that place. A few years ago, uh, a young girl from Pakistan came and studied in Oxford, and she met Christians, and she came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal saviour. And then she went back to Pakistan. That's one of the things about Oxford, is people come and people go. It's tough. We miss them. But she went back to Pakistan, and she was a Christian, and she started sharing the gospel with her family. Now, you need to remember that in Pakistan, there's less than 2% Christian. It's one of the hardest countries to reach in, in the world. They're, they're very hostile to Christianity. We could send 10 of us fully funded, fully prayed for to Pakistan, and it would be a real struggle because we aren't indigenous Pakistanis. She shares the gospel with her family, and her family gets saved. And her dad goes to seminary, trains to be a minister of the gospel and is now an indigenous Pakistani reaching Pakistanis in Pakistan. That is amazing. But I tell you that, I tell you that because not only should we just worship God because it's so amazing, I tell you because she came to Oxford. See, the world comes to Oxford. As Neil said, 140 countries represented in the student body and growing. And so the world comes to us, and if we can get hold of some of these students and influence them for, the Christ, for Christ, that the impact, as Brandon and Gabe were telling us, if, if you send Brandon and Gabe to Thailand, and, and they can impact 20, 40, 60, 80 people, really they're impacting hundreds, if not thousands. It's the economy of the way God, God works. The students are coming to Oxford. So I just wanted to commend Neil's work to you because of how, how strategic it is. But then there's also another girl who I'm not going to name for privacy's sake, comes from a country in Europe last year to study in Oxford, comes from a nominal Roman Catholic background, denies that, becomes an atheist, has big questions, goes along to the coffee evening, the search it's called, that Neil runs, and, uh, and just starts asking questions, ends up on Neil's table. And then she starts coming to our church, and the Lord has saved her. And she lives, because of where Neil and Ruth and the family live, right in the centre of Oxford, she lives, what is it, about 10, 10, 12 metre walk. She's in New College, which is directly opposite on this street. Got to watch the cyclists. They're a kamikaze cyclist in Oxford. <laughs> they will kill you, I'm telling you. They just don't care. So when you're crossing the street, I hope she's careful. But she comes over and there, there she is. And, you know, she, she's a young Christian, but young Christians have questions, don't they? They need discipling and she's wrestling with relationship issues and, and walking with the Lord. And what does this mean in the Bible? So she just comes over and there's Neil and Ruth and they, they bake with her and they talk to her and they give her wisdom and they share their lives with her. Again, that's amazing, isn't it? And so I'm just saying those two stories illustrate for me how important the work of Be Less is. And really, I just want to encourage you, come to the luncheon in the garage afterwards, grab one of these flyers, sign up for their prayer letter. They have uh, financial needs. If the Lord puts it on your heart to dig deep and give, then please do. I just can't commend highly enough the work of Neil and Be Less to you. We're going to read God's word. We've been going through, uh, you have, I haven't been here, but... Um, uh, we've actually been doing it in Oxford as well. We've been tracking you. The sermon you heard from Neil last week, if you were here on Rahab, he actually preached in Oxford the week before. I preached this sermon in Oxford last week. And so we've been purposefully tracking what you guys have been doing here. We've been looking at the genealogy of Matthew and these mothers of Jesus. 
Because in that genealogy, this list, this family tree of Jesus Christ, five women are included. Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba and Mary and Ruth. And so we're going to read about Ruth now. I invite you to stand as we read God's word. I'm going to read the first chapter of Ruth and then a few verses at the end of Ruth in chapter 4, verse 13. Let's hear God's word. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go with you to your people but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more, any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung or cleaved to her look said Naomi your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her but Ruth replied don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you where you go I will go and where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your God my God where you die I will die and there will be, I will be buried may the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Then turn with me to chapter 4. If you know the story, amazingly, Ruth meets Boaz, this, this guardian, this kinsman, redeemer, and a fledgling romance begins, and they get married. And this is what we read in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amen. To be seated. What was happening in 1809? I'm not suggesting any of you were living there at the time in 1809, but what was happening? Some of you are surely some history buffs. What was happening in 1809? What was the headline news? What was everyone talking about? What was everyone thinking about? What was everyone thinking would shape the destiny of, his, of history in the years to come? Well, what was happening was Napoleon was striding through Austria making war. There was bloodletting. 
There was displacement of people. There was death. There was refugees. And this is what everyone was talking about. Would Napoleon win? Would Napoleon shape and be the shaper of history for the foreseeable future? That was the headline news. And yet, in 1809, four other things happened that never made the headline news and no one was talking about at the time, but actually went on to change history. Those four other things were four births, four births of babies, four births of babies that were never reported at the time, but who later became very famous. Who were they? A man called William Gladstone was born in 1809. William Gladstone went on to become one of Great Britain's finest statesmen and politicians. Another man who was born in 1809 was Alfred Tennyson, a British poet. And he has shaped and influenced the literary world to date as we know it. Third person born in 1809 was someone called Charles Darwin. Have you ever heard of Charles Darwin? And you know the influence and impact that Darwin still has upon our day. And then the fourth and final little boy born in a rugged log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky. Who was he? What was his name? Abraham Lincoln. The world was thinking about the headlines, the Napoleonic Wars and how it would change the world forever. But what actually changed the world was not the Napoleonic Wars. What actually changed the world were the birth of those four and possibly other babies in obscurity, in insignificance, and yet they would go on to do amazing things. Now, why do I tell you that? Because at this time of year, as we come to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, there's a great danger for us, isn't there? There's a great danger that we actually get absorbed by the headlines, that we think what's important is, in Great Britain, Brexit, or Boris Johnson as our new elected leader. Over here, across the pond, surely it's what's going to happen in 2020. Will Donald Trump get re-elected or not? What changes need to happen? This is, this is the headline news. This is what is, the journalists are writing about. And we, we can get absorbed by what's happening in our world, and we can miss the significance of the fact that 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in Bethlehem, in a manger, and it's he who has changed the world and he continues to change the world. We can fill our lives with fun, festivities, family and food, and I'll take all four, especially the last one. (laughs) But we can be distracted by it, can't we? And we need to be, sometimes if I'm talking to myself, forcefully reminded of the significance of Jesus Christ, that he has come to be the saviour of our world, that he is the great one, He is the Messiah. He is God in flesh. He has taken upon himself all of our sins so that we can be made right with our God and enjoy the hope of eternal life. And that is worth singing about. Oh, that's terrible. He is worth singing about. And that's what Ruth is all about, actually, as we look at Ruth. I want to impress upon you this morning that Ruth is all about Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' story. And because it's Jesus' story, it's our story story. Three things from Ruth I want us to think about. First thing, let's think about the story itself. Many of you will be familiar with this story. It's an exciting story. It's a beautiful story. One person has said that it is actually uh, one of the greatest stories ever written in, in these four chapters. I'll never be a Hollywood film director, but if I was, I would choose the Ruth story to put into film. It's an amazing story. It should be a Hollywood blockbuster. How do we understand it? What's the flow? Three, three parts of the story. Here's the first part of the root story, famine. Do you notice we read that right at the beginning? There's famine in the land and Elimelech has to go to Moab. We don't know why, but he goes to Moab with Naomi and his two sons. Famine in the land. But the famine, the physical famine really points us to the famine of Naomi's life. Because what happens to her? She leaves God's people, God's promised land. She goes with her husband. Her two sons end up marrying Moabitesses. And then her husband dies, and then her two sons die. And as she says, I am now empty. I went away full, 
and now I'm empty. When she goes back to Bethlehem, they say, Naomi's home. Naomi means pleasant. And she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. The Lord's hand has been heavy upon me. This is the first stage of the plot. The famine, the emptiness, the bitterness that Naomi feels. And this is, this is something we need reminding of, don't we? As Christians, we're, we're not immune in God's economy. God, God, when you become a Christian, he doesn't say everything's gonna be all roses and tinted glass for the rest of your life until you get to heaven. Oh no, he doesn't say that. We go through trial and difficulty, don't we? We go through times of famine and loss and we face death. And what we have in this story is a famine, a very real story, a story that we can relate to. And the second part of the story is faith. We see this amazing confession of faith, don't we? Here's, here's Naomi with nothing. She has nothing. Only she does. She has one who she doesn't realize until the end of the story is better than seven sons. And she tells Orpah and she tells Ruth, go back to Moab, go back to Moab. Why would you come with me? Because if you come with me, you've got nothing. I can't, I can't bear any more children. But if you go back, you can continue your family line. You can get other husbands. You can be looked after. But what does Ruth say? We read it, didn't we? This amazing confession of faith. Ruth chapter one, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. What an amazing light in the darkness. In this, this time of emptiness and bitterness and famine, God has given her this Moabite who makes this astounding confession of faith. What's she doing here? What's Ruth doing? She is surrendering her life to God. That's what she's doing. If you said to Ruth, look, you can have the world here or you can just have God, she wouldn't even have to think about it. She chooses God. She says, your God is my God. Your people is my people. I'm going to stay with you. And what an encouragement to Naomi this would be. And what a lesson to us. If you were here last week, you'd have heard from Neil who preached on Rahab and Rahab makes an amazing confession of faith in Joshua chapter two. And what she does is she rejects self-sufficiency. She says, I will not be self-sufficient. I will trust in my God. I will throw my lot in with him. And Ruth is in many ways doing exactly the same, surrendering herself to God, giving herself. And that, that's what it is to be a Christian. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. What is this thing called faith? This is one way in which faith expresses itself. It is simply saying, God, you've given me so much. You have loved me so much. I'm going to just give you what I have back. That's what faith is. That's what, you don't have to come to Oxford University and get triple master's degree to become a Christian. God just wants you to come with who you are and where you are and say, I give it. My thoughts, my life, my money, my time, my energy, my all to you. And that's what Ruth is doing here. What a wonderful example of faith. There's a third part to the story. We've had famine, faith, and how does it all end? It ends with fullness. Boaz turns up. A man of stature. A man of wealth. A man of influence. A man of upright conviction, kindness and love. He's the Mr. Darcy of the story. I don't know if he takes off some of his clothes, dives into the lake, swims across and comes up and all the ladies' hearts are going nuts. I don't know if he does that. But he is the Mr. Darcy. He turns up, he's this, he's this salvation character. As he comes in and he sweeps Ruth off her feet and he does everything well. Even in chapter three, when under the terrible, foolish advice of Naomi, she goes and lays at his feet and, and the, the, she's basically saying, Let's, let's get it on. And what does Boaz do? No, he's the man of uprightness. And he goes before and he does it right. He makes sure that, the, that he's the guardian redeemer. And before the elders, he, he takes off his shoe to, 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 to a symbolic of it. And, and, she and he takes her as his wife. He's a man of upright character, the Mr. Darcy of the story. And what we're being told is this movement, famine, faith, fullness. And what happens in the end? It's a happily ever after story. That's what it is. A truly happily ever after story because Naomi and Ruth get this son 
and they're blessed. And, and she said she was bitter, but now she's full. She said she was empty, but she is now experiencing God's blessing. This is what God does. Did you know that? This is what God loves to do. He specializes in this. He specializes in taking the weak, the insignificant, the things that our world doesn't even bother to look at, never make headlines. And he takes them and he blesses them and he abundantly pours out his goodness upon them. This is what the story of Ruth is all about. What do we learn from the story of Ruth? Well, two things before we move on. We learn that God is a God who blesses faithfully. God is a God who blesses faithfully. I don't know if you noticed something in Ruth's confession. Have you ever heard that before anywhere else in the Bible? When she says, your people are my people and your God are my God, there should, be, there should be bells ringing. Where have I heard that before? Where have I heard that before? And where have I heard it? Not from the lips of a man or a woman or a child. I've heard it from the lips of God himself. Go and read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Because in those passages, God does to Abraham what Ruth is doing now to Naomi. It's the God of covenant love who says to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will stay with you and you will never leave me. And amazingly, in God's wonderful grace and love to Naomi, he brings this Moabite woman to remind her on her own lips of the promises of God. Naomi would have been going, what? From a Moabite lady? I'm being reminded, yes, she is committing to me, but that is reminding me of God's commitment to me as well. In other words, she should have been sitting there going, it feels like I'm in famine, but God's on my side. God is faithful to me. Didn't we hear that from Jeshua just now? That sometimes when we go through the hardest times, we actually find that our God is the closest. It's Psalm 23 stuff, isn't it? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's when we're going through the famine times that God is often most close to us. And that's actually what we're seeing here. God is reminding her, you are in famine, but I'm gonna take you through faithful faith to fullness. One other thing that we see is in the Ruth story is that really it's a birth narrative, isn't it? That's what the Ruth story is. It's about the birth of a baby. The story of Ruth is, is about a struggle for an heir, someone who can continue the family line. And so when we get to Matthew chapter one, and when we start reading about the birth narrative of Jesus Christ, the Ruth story is preparing us for it. Saying, look, look, this is how God works. This is what's so special to God and for God. He's going to give a son. He's going to bless with a saviour. And it's starting to happen in Ruth. I love a little detail in, the, in, in, in what we read in Ruth chapter 4. I don't even notice it. Right at the end. Ruth chapter 4 verse 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Now, you know what's so interesting about that? That phrase, Naomi has a son, is exactly the same as Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto you, a son is born. Unto you, a son is born. So these women in Bethlehem, they are prophetically speaking to Naomi, a son has been born. And isn't that what we get excited about at this time of year? A son has been born. And then go with me to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. I used to read this as a child and I used to find it so anticlimactic. Wrongly, wrongly. I've changed, don't worry. I get really excited about it now. But Luke chapter two, they're the shepherds. The angels come and this is what they say to them. Luke two, two verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Okay, this is good stuff. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This is getting even better. This will be a sign to you. And I'm on the edge of my seat. What's the sign? What's the sign? God is going to do something amazing. And then what do we read? You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's the sign. This is the great thing God is doing. Doesn't that strike you on one hand as terribly anticlimactic? 
You think, wait a minute, here's these angels, myriad, myriad of angels, here's these shepherds, and they come to announce the birth of Jesus, and this is the sign. A baby in a manger. But if you're thinking biblically, and Ruth is training us to think biblically, if you're thinking biblically, we should go, of course that's the sign. The sign to Ruth is she has a baby who has a baby who has a baby who's David. The, the message to Isaiah in their, their exile, God's people in exile is, I'm going to give you a son whose government will be on his shoulders and whose wonderful counsellor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so when we get to Jesus, there's no anti-climax here. This is the big thing. A child wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Can you see what Ruth is doing? The, Ruth of st- the story of Ruth is preparing us, patterning for us, so that when we get to Matthew, we'll actually start to understand what's happening here. Secondly, notice God's sovereignty, because in the Ruth story, you can't help seeing that God is here at work. Only it's in surprising ways. We have here God at work. First of all, we, we have a display of his sovereignty through his hiddenness. This is something theologians wrestle with, what we call the hiddenness of God. We believe in God, don't we? You can say amen. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe he made everything. We believe he rules and he reigns. We believe he's returning. And yet, where is he? Do you see him this morning? Where is he? Where is he in our lives? It's easy to come to church and sing the praises and then we go home and Wednesday morning the doctor phones up and you get the cancer announcement or you or your friends or your family. It's easy, isn't it? And at that point, where's God? Where is he? He seems so hidden from us. But Ruth is teaching us a very important truth and it's this, God works in the ordinary. That's what the Ruth story is. It's terribly ordinary. It's just this lady. She's struggling because her husband's died. That's very ordinary. Lots of husbands die in life. We die in life. She's lost her sons. Harvest. Fledgling romance. It's all very ordinary. We can relate to it. This is the stuff, the humdrum stuff of our lives. And yet what's actually happening is God is working. God is at work through the ordinary in Ruth. You know, there are some commentators on the book of Ruth that actually question why it's there. Why is this book in the Bible? Why have we got these four chapters of this obscure family? What, 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 Ruth, Naomi, Obed, who cares? Boaz, what? It's not big, is it? It's not going to change the world. When I was listening to Joshua give his testimony, I wanted to shout out, this is why Ruth is there. To tell us that God works in the ordinary, in the everyday life, the struggles, the difficulties, the cancers, the sudden deaths, the car crashes, or just the mundane. That's actually one of the things we struggle with the most, isn't it? It's Monday tomorrow, and my Monday is going to look pretty similar to last Monday, and the Monday before, and the Monday before that. But in the mundane, in the humdrum, in the ordinary, Ruth is telling us God is at work. And that's preparing us for Jesus, isn't it? Because when we open up the gospel narratives about Jesus, isn't it all very ordinary? The heavens don't open and King Jesus descend on the throne with the whole world bowing before him and the red carpets rolled out. That doesn't happen. It's just Mary. She's a virgin trying to get married to Joseph and Caesar Augustus is on is on is in control and there's Roman occupation and there's a census and they have to move and there's no room in the inn and it's all terribly ordinary and we could read the gospels and many people have and miss the significance that in the ordinary God is doing the extra ordinary and that's true in your life as well as mine you look yourself in the mirror and you think well I'm pretty ordinary yeah you are but that's exciting God's not interested in the extraordinary he does extraordinary with the ordinary It's one of the lies of our world. One of the lies of our world is you can do whatever you want. You hear the celebrities, don't you? The one in a billion who've actually made it to the top go, you can do it. Dream your dreams. The reality, the statistical reality is that 99.999999% of us will live humdrum, ordinary lives. 
If you want convincing of that, just look at my life. We're ordinary, but that should excite us. Because Ruth tells us God works through the humdrum and the ordinary, and it's preparing us for Jesus Christ, isn't it? Another way in which we see God's sovereignty here is just in the timing of everything. Let me read you another verse, and I just love this. I love the understatement of Scripture. Chapter 2 of Ruth, chapter 2 of Ruth, verse 3. They need food, they're hungry, they've arrived in Bethlehem, so Naomi sends them into the fields to to try and get some grain. So she went out, chapter 2, verse 3, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, don't you love the understatement of Scripture? As it turned out, or literally, it just happened to happen. It just happened to happen that there was a famine and they had to go to Moab. It just happened to happen that Ruth married one of Naomi's sons. It just happened to happen that they died. It just turned out that they went back to Bethlehem at the time of the harvest. And it just happened to happen that she went out to get food in the field of Boaz, the guardian redeemer. And it just happened to happen that he took a liking for her. And this fledging romance came out. It just happened to happen that he happened to be in a position to actually save her as a guardian redeemer. And it just happened to happen that they had a baby boy and it just turned out that that baby boy had a son who had a son who had a son who was David and it just turned out that they had a son 42 generations later according to Matthew 1 and his name was Jesus Christ. It just happened. Only it didn't just happen, did it? I love the understatement of scripture. You see what's been shouted out to us? God's not in that verse. He's not mentioned, but his signature and his autograph is all over it. God is conspiring to bring all events together to work out his sovereign promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God is weaving all the details together, even the timing and the very field that she goes into. I hope by just looking at me, you realize that needlework is not a hobby of mine. I do have four daughters and they love crafts and tapestry and needlework and crochet and all that sort of stuff. You can tell I'm already out of my depth talking about this. But you see, when you, when you see a tapestry, a finished tapestry, what do you see? You see this one, if it's done well, you see this wonderful picture, don't you? It might be a farm scene or, I don't know, maybe a verse of scripture and some flowers or whatever. And it's beautiful up there on the wall and it looks amazing. But have you ever looked on the back? If you haven't, I suggest you do this. I remember the first time I did it. It's an absolute mess. There's just these, these bits of different color, what you call it, thread, cotton, yarn, I don't know, all just there. And look, no one does this. No one goes, wow, let's put that on the wall. And then you walk in and go, wow, what a complete chaotic mess. It's wonderful. But what I love about that, it's a wonderful picture of what God does. That our lives look like the reverse of the tapestry, don't they? I'm a complete carnage but what God is doing is he's taking all those little bits of carnage all the timings and relationships and ups and downs and challenges and difficulties and on the front side he's making a beautiful picture and that's what is happening in Ruth we've just been reminded of the wonderful providence of our God his sovereignty that in the details and in the ordinariness of life he is at work so that when we get to Jesus and we read his genealogy and we read about his birth we can see whoa wait a minute God's doing something amazing here he's preparing us for the birth of our glorious savior one other thing about God in the root story I wanted to draw your attention to and it's that God is gifting something to his people isn't he See, it is about Ruth and Boaz. It's a romance between Ruth and Boaz. But in so often in in the biblical revelation, it's not just, there's multiple ways you can look at it, multiple angles, multiple levels. And so we need to step back and realize God is, is wonderfully blessing Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but he's also blessing his people Israel. Did you notice what the first words of Ruth are and what the last word is? First word of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. Last word of Ruth. David. 
the guy who would go on to be Israel's greatest king. See, Ruth lived in a time of the judges where there was no king, when there was anarchy, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And go and read the end of Judges and you'll see what happens when you do that. It's a mess. But you see, God is blessing his people. God is advancing his plan. God is doing something new. And so what he's actually doing is in blessing Ruth and Boaz and Naomi with Obed, he's actually got in mind these covenant promises. He's outworking something bigger than them even for his people. And he's gifting them the Lord David, the king, who will go on, whose son will go on to be greater than him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that when we get to the birth stories. This is why I believe Ruth is included in the genealogy of Matthew. So as we read it, we're going, oh yeah, what happened with Ruth? Oh, God gave him a son. And that son was David, went on to be David. And, and he was the greatest king of Israel. Oh, we're, we're in Matthew now. And God has given us a son. He's gonna go on and be the fulfiller, the consummator, the apex of all of God's promises in Abraham. Can you see what God's doing here? Can you see in the hiddenness and the ordinariness and the gift He's blessing his people. He's outworking his promises and he's preparing us to see how significant Jesus is. And that's my third point. We've looked at the Ruth story and we've looked at God's sovereignty. Finally then, let's think about Christ's significance. The significance of Jesus Christ. And there's significance immediately, isn't there, on the face value of Ruth. You see the word Bethlehem and you should immediately switch on. House of bread, it literally means. And we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We see a birth narrative and we should immediately switch on. Oh, God is going to do something. There's a birth narrative. There's something really important happening here. A few other ways we need to remember the significance of Jesus Christ in the Ruth story as it's preparing us for Jesus Christ. And here's the first one. It's rest. Rest. Now, you'll have already seen this if you're a regular at Crossroads, I hope. You certainly will have heard about it last week when Neil spoke on Rahab. That when you... When you see this, this notion of rest in the Bible, you should immediately switch on and think God's doing something amazing. Do you remember the seventh day? At the end of creation, God rested. With Rahab, God gave her rest as the, the, the foretaste, as it were, the firstborn of rest. So, that, so before even the whole of Israel rested in the land of, of, of Canaan, of the promised land. And what do we read in Ruth? Ruth chapter 1, verse 9. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of her husband. And then Ruth chapter 3 as well, verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home. And that word is the same word. A rest for you where you will be well provided. This is the significance of what's going on here. When you see a combination of things, when you see God's promises starting to advance and you see him using that idea of rest and you see him using an insignificant woman, you should start getting excited because it means God is about, it's signaling to us that God is about to do something amazing and he does. In this story, David comes. But then we fast forward to Jesus and what do we get? In Jesus, we get something even greater. We get God's promises advancing. We get a seemingly insignificant woman, the Virgin Mary. And we get a saviour who comes to offer rest. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, God is doing something remarkable. He's preparing us in the Ruth story. He's saying, this is how I work. These are the hallmarks of my working in Ruth and with rest and the advancement of my promises. So when we get to Jesus, we need to realize, wait a minute, something really important is happening here. We've got all of those factors combining together in his birth. And this is what he offers us. He offers us rest, doesn't he? Rest from our labors. He offers to bless us and be with us. And that leads me to the third way. Forgive me, the second significance of Jesus Christ and it's fullness. We've already seen this, haven't we? The great storyline of Ruth is emptiness to fullness, bitterness to blessing. In many ways, the Ruth story, the Naomi story, is a death and resurrection story, isn't it? Naomi dies. She has nothing. She's left bereft. And yet out of the ashes, as we sang, out of the ashes of her death, hope rises. 
because God is at work and he specializes in taking dead things and breathing new life into them. And that's what we have here, don't we? We have a, a, a fullness that God is offering to us. Don't you love the fact in Jesus, when you read the Gospels, that there's an abundance to Jesus? Have you ever calculated how much wine he turned from water into wine in the first miracle in Cana? It might just be my mind. It's the kind of thing when I read it, I try and work out those big vats. I think there was eight of them. I've actually seen one in real life in Romania. They're huge. They're bigger than me. I could stand in them. They're big vats of water. And they're full of water. And Jesus turns them into wine. It it, it comes down to about 3,000 bottles of wine. That's a huge cellar of wine by any judgment. And you want to say to Jesus, why so much? I mean, it's a party. But come on, that much? It's because he's fulfilling Amos. The wine will flow down the mountains. He comes to bless abundantly. And what about in the feeding of the 5,000? What happens in the feeding of the 5,000? You know, you're not left with one brownie on the plate and all the guys going, who's going to have the last brownie? And there are 12 baskets of bread. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I've come to bring blessing in fullness, in abundance. And this is the theme of Ruth, emptiness to fullness. And we get it in Jesus Christ, don't we? But I've got to just dwell on this because who? We've got to look at this. Who is it that gets the fullness? And this is really quite amazing. It's, it's Ruth, isn't it? And who's Ruth? Ruth's a Moabite. Ruth's an enemy of God. The Moabites are told in Deuteronomy 23 in the law of God that the, no Moabite is allowed in the assembly of the Lord. If a Moabite tried to turn up in the Old Testament to Crossroads Church, the elders would be barring them at the doors. Not allowed in, no Moabite allowed. To the 10th generation. And yet, who does God use? Who's David's great-great-grandmother? Who's Jesus Christ's great-great-great-great-great-grandmother? It's a Moabite. Why? Because of Genesis 12, verse 3, that's why. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what we're getting in Ruth, it's like a, a down payment. Like, like God saying, see, you don't believe my word? Here's a hint. I'm going to use this enemy, this, this lady from another nation who shouldn't even be involved in the assembly of God's people. I'm going to use her and she's going to be part of the family line. And this is what God does, doesn't he? This is the great inexorable plan and purpose of God in going out to all peoples, all families, all tribes, all ethnicities with the great gospel. And we live in amazingly blessed times, don't we? We live 2,000 years later from the coming of Jesus Christ. And what's happened in the last 2,000 years? You don't get this in many history books. What's happened in the last 2,000 years is God has kept his promise. In Jesus Christ, the nations are being blessed. 1900, Kenya, 5% Christian. 1990, Kenya, 95% Christian. 1960s, there were literally just a few thousand Christians in China. The communist government kicks out all the missionaries, all the Western missionaries. Anyone who wasn't Chinese, get out. If you don't leave, we'll kill you. So they left. In fear and trepidation, not for themselves, but for this fledgling church. What's going to happen to those few thousand Christians in China? This atheist, communist country. 20 years later, the doors opened and they went back in and they couldn't believe what they saw. Because they didn't go back in and find thousands of Christians or 10,000 of Christians or hundreds of thousands of Christians. They went back into China and found millions of Christians. Even though the missionaries have been kicked out. And you know what? It should fill us with joy and praise to God for it, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because this is what God is doing. And as you send Brandon and Gabe over to Thailand, they're going to face many difficulties. And as a church, you're going to have to get behind them. As you pray for Neil and Bilas in Oxford, they're going to face difficulties and you're going to have to get behind them. But you can send them with great confidence because they are doing God's will. What's God's plan for history? He's like, Boris Johnson? Who cares? I'm building my church. I'm going to reach the lost. That's what God's plan is. And Ruth is a wonderful reminder to us that Jesus has come to bless the whole nation of our world. Every tribe, nation, language, tongue, people group, ethnicity. And that can give us great confidence 
in mission, our God comes to bring fullness, doesn't he? The other significant thing about Jesus is in this figure of a redeemer, isn't it? Boaz becomes a guardian redeemer. And we see this Darcy figure, don't we? Love, kindness, wisdom, uprightness. He, he keeps the law. He loves Ruth. He takes her to himself. But of course, doesn't that point us to Jesus Christ? Isn't this what Jesus is? Isn't this what Jesus gives us? Jesus is our redeemer. And in fact, if you read the the Boaz, the Ruth story carefully, we're being reminded that Boaz is actually, before he's a a figure appointing towards Christ, he's actually a reminder of Adam. Actually, the, the romance between Ruth and Boaz actually should remind us of the romance between Adam and Eve. Why do I say that? Uh, Some more details from the text. Ruth 1, verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung or cleaved to her. And then in verse 16 we read, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you. There are two verbs being used there, and it's very unusual that they're put together in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's one other place, there may be one or two others, but one other place that should be shouting out to you. Where do you hear leave and cleave? You hear it in Genesis 2 in the first marriage between Adam and Eve, don't you? Same verbs. When a husband leaves his family, he will cleave to his wife and they shall be one. And then, what happens to Boaz in chapter 3? He goes to sleep. He wakes up. And who's there? This is not, by the way, the way, young men, you get wives. God doesn't do it this way. But for Boaz, it does. He goes to sleep. He wakes up, and who's there? Ruth, this woman who becomes his wife. Does that remind you of anything? Doesn't God put Adam to sleep? And he wakes up, and there's Eve. Can you see how the Ruth-Boaz romance is actually echoing Adam and Eve? And then then we fast forward, don't we, to Jesus Christ? And what's Jesus' relationship to the church like? Well, we're told in Ephesians 5, Jesus' relationship to the church is a marriage relationship. We're the bride. He's the groom. He's the great redeemer who's come to save us, to win us. He's the man of God, upright, loving, full of stature. He's the Mr. Darcy. And he's saved us, the church. He's loved us. It's the great romance of history, isn't it? The great romance of history is actually the romance between Jesus Christ and his church. His blood-poured people. He loves us. And he's given himself for us. So when we read Ruth and we fast forward to Matthew's genealogy, we should be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on here? We've got a great romance. And this romance is about us. We're included. The Ruth story is our story because it's Jesus' story. It reminds us that our God has loved us and he sent Jesus to be our redeemer. I'm almost done. We've seen these three things, haven't we? Ruth's story, God's sovereignty, Christ's significance. Have you got it? Have you got how amazingly significant Jesus Christ is? Our world, let me speak. I'm going to address the young people, but I'm addressing all of you, of course. You know, I'm young not just in name. Our world bombards us with temptations, doesn't it? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it's tempting. That's the problem with sin. It's tempting. It's alluring. It feels good. Don't get sucked in. All you need is Jesus. He is the most significant thing you can have in your life. He is God's gift for you, and for his people. He is the culmination of all his promises. And when you have Jesus, you are in God's will. And it doesn't matter if you face famine or death or cancer or difficulty or struggle or the loss of loved ones, you've got Jesus. He's with you. He's beside you. He will stick with you through thick and thin. Oh, he doesn't promise to, to, to alleviate you from suffering, but he does promise to be with you there in suffering because he suffered for us. Can you see how significant Jesus Christ is? I love the quote by C.S. Lewis that at the birth of Jesus, there was more in the manger than was outside the manger. Can you get your head around that? What am I talking about? The creator of the cosmos, the eternal son of God, is man, his baby, in a manger. The world is being upheld by him. And here he is. There's more in the manger than outside the manger. Why? 
Because he's come to be our redeemer, that's why. Because he loves his people and he goes to the cross for them. And he's going to suffer in our place for, the, for us. So he can secure salvation for us. Can you see, when you've got Jesus, you don't need anything else. He is so significant. There's one other thing I wanted to mention before I go. What I love about the Ruth story, what I love about the genealogy of Matthew and these five women, is it shouts out the grace of God, doesn't it? Have you read the Tamar story in Genesis 38? It's grim reading. Bathsheba, adultery. Rahab, a prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite, enemy. And yet Jesus Christ is unashamed to associate in his family tree with these hell-deserving sinners. A few years ago, Ben Affleck, the famous Hollywood celebrity actor, was on a TV program called Find Your Roots. It's a PBS program and it's all about, you know, they've got a research team and they look into your family history and they find out these juicy nuggets about your family history and they air it and it's all very interesting, I'm sure. And they found out in the research process that Ben Affleck had a great, great granddad whose name was Benjamin Cole, who was a slave trader. Ben Affleck was incredibly embarrassed and he put pressure before it was aired on the producers to cut that bit out of the program, and they did. Of course, these things always see the light of day. A few weeks later, it came out. And Ben Affleck said this, the very thought of having a great, great, great granddad who was a slave trader left a bad taste in my mouth. I was so embarrassed. Here's the amazing news about Jesus Christ, is that he is unashamed to be associated with people like you and me. He's not embarrassed. It doesn't leave a bad taste in his mouth to have people like Ruth and Tamar and Bathsheba in his family line because he loves sinners. And the, the story of Ruth and the genealogy of Matthew shouts out to us the grace of our God that hell-deserving sinners like you and me, Jesus comes and says, you're my family. You're my own. You're my blood-bought children. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Can you see the grace of our God in the story of Ruth? See the significance of Jesus Christ. May God help us to make, make this Jesus our Jesus, to make the story of Ruth our story, our romance, because Jesus is our saviour, son born for us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to just thank you for the grace that you show us in Jesus. Words cannot sum up how indebted we are to you. He is lovely to us. His grace is lovely and delightful and beautiful. Help us to love him. Help us to serve him. Help us to never doubt your goodness and your sovereign providences, but help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in Jesus Christ, given for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.